Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 124, Space Shuttle Flight 52, STS-53, The Dogs of War. Last time, we talked about the 13th flight of Space Shuttle Columbia, STS-52. We sent a bedazzled yoga ball into an 8 million year long orbit, did some mid-deck experiments, and made fun of Canadians for really no reason at all. There are no Canadians on this flight, but I've got my eye on you. Nope, this time we've got an all-American and all-military crew, since for the last time, we'll be deploying a classified satellite for the Department of Defense. Oh no, another classified mission? I thought we were done with these things. Nah, fear not. In the past, we may have dreaded classified missions because they were so hush-hush that it was hard to build a fun episode around them. But this isn't a classified mission. It's just a classified payload. So once we get rid of whatever it is in the payload bay, we'll revert to a regular old out-in-the-open space shuttle mission, which is just the way we like it. After the pretty heavy secrecy of some previous DoD flights, you might wonder why this mission is so relatively open. Well, there are a few probable reasons, and we'll discuss some of them once we get on orbit, but one reason is pretty simple. It's cheaper. Supporting a classified mission is not easy. While all NASA missions are carefully planned down to the smallest details, those details don't usually involve stuff like making sure that nobody can trace astronaut travels to contractors and make a guess at the payload, or clearing the room whenever a classified detail needs to be discussed or using a whole separate set of computers and communications lines. A classified mission creates friction, and friction causes things to take longer, and time is money. So all of that extra effort combined with specialized personnel can quickly drive up the cost of a mission. By only making the payload classified, the DoD would be saving nearly $100 million, and that's before adjusting for inflation. That said, the very fact that secrecy was able to be relaxed a little gives us some clues about what this payload might be, but we'll get to that in a little bit. First, let's meet the crew that will be ushering it into orbit. As I mentioned, today's crew is fully composed of Americans with a military background. This is just me speculating, but I would imagine that all of these crew members already had clearances as part of their military work, which makes them a convenient choice for a flight like this. Commanding the flight was Dave Walker, who we last saw commanding STS-30, which sent the Magellan spacecraft on its way to Venus. We were actually originally supposed to see him around a year ago on STS-44, but like Hoot Gibson, Walker found himself briefly grounded due to disciplinary action. In Walker's case, rather than an unauthorized air show, he was involved in an incident that resulted in him flying dangerously close to a commercial airliner. Well, I guess Walker has learned his lesson, because here he is, back for his third of four flights. Walker seems like a really interesting dude. Wayne Hale, one of the flight directors for this mission, has an excellent blog where he's talked about this flight and the entertaining antics of Commander Walker, who he described as colorful. Hale writes about how Walker drove an old station wagon that he'd repainted white himself. Quote, it was not a great paint job. As if a space shuttle commander driving an old beater around wasn't weird enough, Walker apparently found a damaged and discarded T-38 wingtip at Ellington Field, and rather than letting it be scrapped, he attached it to his beat-up car. Okay, sure. Why not? Flying his pilot today was Bob Cabana. We know Bob from his flight on STS-41, which sent the Ulysses Solar Probe out to Jupiter for a gravity assist. This is his second of four flights. 
Mission Specialist 1 was someone who we know pretty well by this point, Guy Bluford. We last saw him fly on STS-39, which did some crazy orbital rendezvous routines with SPAS-2. If you'll recall, Bluford nearly had to be pulled from the flight due to debilitating issues with a herniated disc in his back. Instead, he underwent surgical treatment, and the crew graciously worked around his recovery. Given his three successful flights and his newfound back trouble, he considered retiring after STS-39, but stuck around for one more flight, making this his last of four. Bluford accomplished a lot over the course of his astronaut career, and in addition to all of that great work, he will also be forever remembered as the first black person to fly in space. So, so long, guy. Enjoy your next career, tackling the world of business. Flying alongside Bluford was Mission Specialist 2, Rich Clifford. Michael Richard Clifford was born on October 13, 1952 in San Bernardino, California. He earned a bachelor's degree from West Point, and eight years later, a master's in aerospace engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology. In between, he began serving with the Army, becoming a top graduate of his class at the U.S. Army Aviation School. He spent a few years serving in West Germany before returning home to pick up his master's and to return to West Point as an instructor. He rounded out his education by graduating from the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in 1986. The next year, he joined the Johnson Space Center as a shuttle vehicle integration engineer, before being selected as an astronaut in 1990. With this flight, Clifford becomes the first astronaut selected in the 1990s to fly in space. And this is his first of three flights. Moving downstairs, poor Mission Specialist 3, Jim Voss, is all alone. Or I guess, put another way, he has the entire mid-deck to himself. We last saw Voss flying on STS-44, which deployed an unclassified communications satellite for the Department of Defense. Walker was supposed to command that flight, but Voss and Walker ended up flying together after all. This is his second of five flights. I mentioned that Mission Commander Walker was a pretty colorful dude. Well, his part T-38 beat-up station wagon wasn't his only quirk. I'm not entirely sure how this came to be, or if there even is a rational reason, but Commander Walker gave everyone associated with the mission dog names. What? Yes, dog names. Don't think too hard about it. Walker had red hair, so he called himself Red Dog. Pilot Bob Cabana was a Marine, so he got the name Mighty Dog. Jim Voss was from the Army, which somehow earned him the name Dogface. Rich Clifford was flying for the first time, so he's Puppy Dog. That beat-up car? That was the Dogmobile. Even non-crew members got names, with Ascent and Entry Flight Director Wayne Hale picking up the name Sled Dog based on the nebulous reasoning that his job involved the crew flying fast. But my favorite goes to Guy Bluford. Guy was on an overseas public relations trip when the name started being handed out. So for his name, Walker went with Dog Gone. <laughs> Together, the all-military crew became the Dogs of War. The launch date for STS-53 had been shuffled around a bit as missions moved around the calendar and was delayed by another month due to some maintenance issues. But when December 2nd, 1992 rolled around, the last shuttle flight of the year was ready to go. The flight was delayed by nearly an hour and a half, while ground crews waited for some ice on the external tank to melt, and while a waiver was issued for structural loads on the wings. The issue was that after measuring the strength of upper-level winds, it looked like the stresses on Discovery's wings would be 102% of the allowable loads. But after a review of the data and discussions with engineers, the decision was made to fly anyway. 
this caught my eye, especially after the decision last time to fly despite conditions that were potentially too windy for a safe RTLS landing, but I actually think that this one is pretty reasonable. The wing was designed to handle up to 105% of its rated loads, and ground crews had quantifiable data showing that the original limits were known to be pretty conservative. It seems that the wings were tougher than originally expected. Given the known conservative limits, hard data in hand, and informed sign-off from the people involved, I think this is a pretty reasonable waiver to fly with. And I'm sure that with Discovery's long spaceflight hiatus, the spacecraft was eager to fly as well. Discovery last flew on STS-42 way back in January. Since then, the vehicle has been undergoing regular maintenance, as well as some special upgrades, including the addition of a drag chute, improved fuel cells, improved nose gear steering, and more. So, with the ice melted and the wing load issue waived, Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off at 8.24am, sailing through an uneventful ride to orbit. With that successful ascent, Discovery began its 15th spaceflight. That's notable, because it means that this one vehicle, OV-103, has now launched as many times as all of the crewed command modules used in all of Apollo. Reusability was never a goal with Apollo, and the two vehicles aren't really comparable, so really this is just a neat bit of trivia. But I thought it was a neat bit of trivia worth bringing up. Apollo command modules were still flying when the shuttle was being designed and built, and here we are using the same spacecraft for an entire program's worth of flights. And Discovery is just getting started. Pretty cool. First on the agenda, apparently, was whatever secretive spacecraft was sitting in the payload bay since it was sent on its way just under six hours into the flight. So let's play our favorite game, Guess the Classified Payload. We actually have a number of clues from a few different sources. As usual, I read through the press kit and the mission report, along with contemporary press articles and oral histories. I also found a great article in an issue of the magazine Spaceflight titled Out of the Shadows, the Shuttle's Secret Payloads, written by Dwayne Day. So let's take a look at what we know. Starting off, we know that the payload was probably not a photo-reconnaissance satellite, for a few different reasons. First, the fact that the onerous security was relaxed at all is a good indication, since photo-reconnaissance satellites are typically extremely secretive. Second, thanks to a dedicated worldwide network of satellite spotters on the ground, we know that the STS-53 payload appeared to regularly flash, which likely indicates that it was spinning. Spinning is not something you want to do if you want to take nice, clear pictures. And this also tracks with the fact that we know that the remote manipulator system was not flown, which makes me think drum satellite, like the old Hughes commsats from the early shuttle era. The lack of an RMS doesn't mean it must be a drum satellite, it would just be consistent. Okay, so it's probably not a photo-reconnaissance satellite, and it might be a drum-like spinner. Next, we're pretty sure that this orbit is similar to the one used by other classified missions that focused on signals intelligence, gathering radio signals from adversaries, or data relay, similar to Tidris. Somewhat unusually for a classified flight, we also know the weight of the payload, around 10,000 kilograms. We would expect a SIGINT satellite to have more mass, and a data relay satellite would be perfectly happy with a spinning Hughes bus. So, it's starting to look more and more like a data relay satellite, but let's keep going. Thanks again to satellite watchers, we know that the mystery spacecraft made a significant maneuver a couple of weeks after deployment, since it was no longer where the satellite watchers expected it to be. It doesn't even seem to be in low Earth orbit anymore. Combine that with the fact that the launch window was known to change by about 5 minutes per day, 
And this would be consistent with what's called a Molnaya orbit. See why the DoD doesn't release even seemingly mundane stuff about their classified satellites? Once you get a few little pieces, you can figure out a lot. Anyway, a Molnaya orbit is one that is extremely eccentric and with a relatively high inclination. You know, like the 57 degrees that we're flying on this mission. By placing the high point of the orbit with care, a satellite can see locations near the north or south pole for long periods of time. Polar locations can have difficulty using geostationary satellites, since they appear so low on their horizon. So, if you were, oh, I don't know, a military base at high latitudes designed to keep an eye on Russia and be ready to launch a counterattack, a data relay satellite in a Molnaya orbit would be pretty convenient. Okay, so, I don't know about you, but now I'm pretty convinced that this was a data relay satellite. But let's look at one last piece of information. This flight shares a lot of similarities with STS-28. They both deployed a classified payload, they both had the same inclination, and ground observers spotted both of their satellites flashing, and therefore likely spinning. Well, if you go all the way back to the mid-1980s and sift through Department of Defense budgets, you'll see that a second generation of the Satellite Data System, or SDS-2, was funded and would launch on the shuttle. When you look at other classified flights and their orbits, there were only so many missions that SDS-2 could have launched on. And this and STS-28 seem to be them. Solving puzzles is fun. The flight also carried a bunch of secondary payloads that studied some stuff that we've seen before, like fluid flow and weightlessness, orbiter glow, radiation exposure, sort of the shuttle greatest hits. It also carried some unique experiments, like one that studied clouds from different angles so that the results could be compared to images from geostationary satellites. That way, geostationary imagery could be interpreted more reliably. There was also an experiment where lasers were fired at the shuttle to see if they could be used as a more secure form of communication for members of the military in the field. During the first Gulf War, pilots who were shot down had to use a radio to call for help and the enemy was able to pinpoint the location of those radios and come get them first, which is not great. A laser is extremely directional, so it would be a lot safer for people behind enemy lines to use. One thing that was sort of weird was that a bunch of experiments were impacted by batteries that apparently weren't charged. A getaway special canister was going to release some metal balls for a debris study, but stayed firmly shut when it was discovered that its battery was dead and there was no way to charge it. That cloud experiment? Dead battery. But at least the crew were able to charge it. Fluids experiment? <laughs> Dead battery. The crew managed to find a spare watch battery to use, and the experiment was a success. Maybe the real experiment was to see if a space shuttle crew could figure out creative ways to deal with a bunch of dead batteries. One experiment that I thought was especially cool was essentially a camera that could tell what it was pointed at. This is one of these things that seems obvious in retrospect, but often doesn't occur to people at first. When you're in low Earth orbit, it's not always super easy to tell where you are. You're used to looking at maps, which have labels and borders clearly marked, and typically have north at the top and south at the bottom. Okay, well, what if you're traveling from the northwest to the southeast, you're at some strange attitude due to a science requirement, and half the sky is covered in clouds? Now where are you? Ah, not so easy. This can be troublesome if a crew member takes a picture of something notable on the ground. Knowing exactly what point on the Earth the shuttle is directly above is hard enough for the crew, but from their lofty vantage point, shuttle crew members can take photos of things thousands of miles away. So that photo of a mountain that's right on the Earth's limb? Well, who knows where that was? 
If the shuttle marked the time a photo was taken, then at least analysts could look up where the shuttle was at that time and know the general area, which is a good starting point. But what if we could do better? This is where Hercules comes in. Hercules, and you just know this is going to be a great acronym, is short for Handheld, Earth-Oriented, Real-Time, Cooperative, User-Friendly, Location-Targeting, and Environmental System. Though, if they used all the letters, it would have to be Hyortkofeltis. And I guess Hercules is better. <laughs> anyway, Hercules is basically a camera that knows where it's pointing. To accomplish this, we start with a modified Nikon camera. Attached to the bottom is a big inertial measurement unit that's about as large as a spindle of blank CDs, which is a comparison that I'm sure dates me nicely. Then, through several thick cables, the camera connects to just the chunkiest laptop that you have ever seen, along with a box of electronics to control the digital camera. By combining the knowledge of where the shuttle is, where the shuttle is pointed, and then where the camera is pointed, it was possible to determine the latitude and longitude of the target of photos with surprising precision, within a few miles of the actual target. It's pretty slick. Despite the all-military crew flying a classified payload for national defense, there was still plenty of room for antics on this mission. At one point during the flight, mission specialist Jim Voss had to dig around inside the airlock to find some equipment. He entered the airlock and stuck his head into a bag, sort of crawling partway in to find the thing that he was looking for. While he was in there, his perception of up and down changed. So when he took his head out of the bag, suddenly in his mind, the round door of the airlock was not a closet-like room on the wall of the middeck. Instead, it was a hot tub on the floor of the middeck, with everything else just floating above him. It was such a surreal moment that he just started laughing. Someone asked what was going on, and he said, Well, I'm in this hot tub right here. Can you see this hot tub? And then he sat on the quote-unquote edge of the hot tub with his legs sticking quote-unquote down into the airlock. <laughs> Eventually, Commander Walker joined him on the rim of the hot tub, followed by the rest of the crew, except for Guy Bluford, who just said, I don't believe you guys, and I'm not coming over there, while the rest of them were cracking up. In another example of mid-deck antics, Jim Voss and Rich Clifford, both from the Army, decided to try to have a zero-G wrestling match. Since neither of them could get any leverage, and since every action has an equal and opposite reaction, the result was the two of them literally bouncing off the walls and flailing around, presumably as the rest of the crew fled to the flight deck in fear for their lives. Well, everyone except Bob Cabana, who decided that looked like fun, and joined in. But there's also time for quiet moments. Pilot Bob Cabana described the remarkable change in scenery from his first flight, STS-41, that flight only had an inclination of 28 degrees, so it hung out near the equator, where most things are nice and green. For this flight, with high inclinations and in the middle of winter, Bob was struck by the bright winter landscape stretching out below him. And I hope Cabana took advice that he later enjoyed giving to rookies before their first flights. He said, quote, Make a memory. Stick your nose up to the window and make a memory. Time on orbit is so expensive, you've got no free time at all. Don't take a picture because you're going to be disappointed when you get home and see the picture. So I hope that as he soared above these snow-covered plains of the country he had served for his whole life, Bob Cabana made a memory. The rest of the flight proceeded smoothly, and on flight day 8, it was time to head home. And thanks to flight director Wayne Hale's oral history and blog post, we have two pretty interesting stories about STS-53's flight home. 
Originally, this would have resulted in a test that had involved years of planning and training, but that was canceled shortly before the mission, testing a new Autoland system. The space shuttle cannot land itself, and there are a few reasons why this is the case, and a few reasons why it makes sense. First, it reflects the overall philosophy of the American human spaceflight program, especially when contrasted with the way that Russia does things. When Project Mercury was designed, nobody knew for sure that humans could even operate in space. In order to err on the side of safety, almost everything on board could be operated remotely. That way, in case the astronaut arrived in space and found themselves completely incapable of doing anything, they could be brought home safely. But even then, the missions were planned with a large amount of agency from the astronaut to actually pilot their spacecraft. Once Mercury started flying, and we realized that hey, not only can humans survive just fine in space, but they actually do pretty well, the design philosophy changed. Gemini took advantage of the presence of skilled pilots and simplified the systems. With a human in the loop, not everything needed to be automated, so the system could be made more streamlined, cheaper, and more reliable. The human-in-the-loop philosophy also carried forward to activities like rendezvous. American astronauts flew their vehicles. So, when designing the shuttle it made sense to take advantage of the humans in the loop and not take on the additional expense and complexity of more automation, like automated landing. It's also worth noting that the astronauts themselves largely hated the idea of an automated landing system. They didn't want the shuttle to be capable of flying without a crew, because they believed that the presence of a crew was essential for mission success, and, well, because they wanted to fly it. But here's the thing. Other than a few test cases, the shuttle commander only actually pilots the spacecraft for the last few minutes of the mission, taking over from the computer after the orbiter is traveling slower than the speed of sound. They only have to fly for two or three minutes, but they only get one shot and they absolutely positively have to get it right every time. And as shuttle missions got longer and longer, the extended periods of weightlessness started to take a toll on the pilot crew. As we've learned, their vision can change, their vestibular systems can change, and even the balance of fluids in their bodies can and do change. As Hale tells it, one early and unnamed commander did not hydrate enough and didn't pump up his G-suit enough before re-entry and nearly lost consciousness during those final critical moments. So clearly there was something to be concerned about here, especially if long missions were here to stay and if they might get even longer. With all of this in mind, an auto-land system was developed. It wasn't the plan for every flight, but it would be a nice tool to have in the toolbox. I'm not going to get into all the technical details on this one, but it involved special instruments placed at particular runways so that the orbiter could precisely determine where it was in relation to the runway. But it's possible for these instruments to fail or get confused. So for this flight, Commander Walker had undergone special training to understand this system, to carefully monitor it, and to recognize when it was in trouble and when to take over for a manual landing. I say was because shortly before the flight, upper management decided to cut the test. All the folks who worked hard to make it happen were disappointed, but the reasoning was that this was actually a pretty risky test with five lives in the line, along with a very valuable asset. Plus, at least according to this decision, the shuttle program was supposedly no longer in the business of long-duration flights. Clearly that thought didn't stick for very long. After the management decision launch waiver of the last episode, I was glad to so quickly come across an example of a management decision instead going in the direction of being a little extra conservative, even if it would have been a cool test to run. 
And actually, Wayne Hale's story of the STS-53 landing doesn't end there. When the time came to make the call on the deorbit burn, the weather at the Kennedy Space Center was great, but a wall of clouds was moving into the area. The clouds weren't really a problem on their own, but since Discovery wouldn't pop through them until it was only 3,000 feet above the ground, there wouldn't be much time to correct any instrumentation problems visually. It was important that the commander and pilot be able to see the runway and the visual aids surrounding it. So the clouds had to be at least 8,000 feet high. With these 3,000-foot clouds marching in, Florida was no good. So Hale, the ascent and entry flight director, turned to Edwards Air Force Base. Nice, bright, open sky Edwards. Well, as usual, the skies at Edwards were beautiful and clear. Except for this one annoying cloud, which was precisely in the path Discovery would have to fly. It was a pretty small cloud, and the shuttle wouldn't be here for around an hour and a half, so surely it would move, right? NASA's meteorologist agreed that the pesky cloud would not be a problem. However, Shuttle Commander Dick Richards, flying his T-38 along the actual path that Dave Walker would be flying, strenuously disagreed, insisting that the conditions were no-go. Well, no flight rules were being violated, and the meteorologist said that the cloud would move, so Hale gave the green light for a landing at Edwards. As Hale tells it, quote, I gave them a go for the deorbit burn. Thought Dick Richards was going to reach through the radio and strangle me. Cut to an hour and a half later, and you guessed it, that stupid little cloud was still firmly planted in front of the runway. Discovery flew through it, emerged out from underneath, at 3,000 feet in altitude. The exact same altitude that they were worried about at Kennedy. Oh, and those clouds at Kennedy? Yeah, they stopped. The weather was gorgeous. Meteorology is a tricky business. But the saga of the STS-53 landing continues, because by the time Discovery arrived at its pesky cloud, it wasn't even the primary concern anymore. As the shuttle arrives at the runway, it travels along a big, long sweeping path called the Heading Alignment Cone or the hack. This maneuver allows the shuttle to carefully bleed off energy while aligning with the runway for a nice, easy landing. It's important to follow the hack precisely, since the shuttle is a carefully engineered vehicle. You couldn't just take any old path you wanted, since you might overstress the vehicle and break something off, like a wing. And, since it's a spaceship, big parts of the structure were rapidly refilling with air. If the orbiter descended too quickly, the payload bay wouldn't be able to fill fast enough and the payload bay doors would implode, which is frowned upon. So it wasn't great that moments before starting the hack, Commander Walker got distracted. On the flight deck, the crew would typically Velcro a tape recorder behind the commander's head, I guess so that they could play it back later and look for any lessons learned. Well, right before this important maneuver was about to start, the tape recorder fell down and distracted Walker, who then proceeded to miss the hack turn-in by something like 10 seconds. And when you're a heavy glider flying at a few hundred miles an hour, that's a pretty long time. Wayne Hale thought for sure they were about to crash. But there's a reason that NASA is picky about choosing its shuttle commanders. Walker was able to ease Discovery back on track, pulling more Gs than normal, but keeping everything well within limits. Velcroed tape recorder. The smallest thing will get you. The orbiter finally safely touched down at the end of another successful mission adding 7 days, 7 hours, 19 minutes, 47 seconds, and 3 million miles to Discovery's logbook. 
and I'm sure that after all that, the crew were eager to hop out and get back to their families. But thanks to a small thruster leak, they had to sit tight inside the orbiter for another hour and a half until the dangerous fumes were dispersed. The smallest things. This flight is really the end of an era. The space shuttle was only funded in the first place thanks to the backing of the Department of Defense, who were sold on the versatility and supposed cost savings of this reusable system. The relationship between NASA and the DoD was always a little bit rocky, though. They just approached things differently, with different mindsets, different tools, and different cultures. The culture clash, the growing backlog, and finally the Challenger accident all proved to be too much, and the DoD returned to expendable boosters, aside from a few final payloads such as this one that had been built with the shuttle in mind. The Department of Defense and NASA would certainly continue to work together in the future, but with this flight, the dream of NASA regularly flying DoD missions, perhaps even with dedicated DoD orbiters and DoD crews, finally came to an end. Personally, while I recognize that there are plenty of benefits to this relationship, I'm sort of happy to see the DoD and NASA part ways. It never really sat quite right to me seeing NASA, a civilian agency exploring for peaceful reasons, partnering with the military, who clearly had different goals and responsibilities. And on a really personal level, I'm just glad I never again have to scrounge around for extra stuff to talk about when the mission report is a little light due to missing classified details. So thanks, STS-53. Next time, Endeavor is back on the launch pad carrying a new payload from a familiar series, Tracking and Data Relay Satellite F. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.